think I need to get some intro music for this podcast. I know I got to work on that over the next couple of uh, episodes. We'll see. Anyway, we're going to get this fired up. Welcome to the Financial Purpose Podcast. All opinions expressed by me or guests of the podcast are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Life Moves Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any financial or investment decisions. Clients of Life Moves Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Well, welcome to the Financial Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Dale Schaefer, and uh, this is episode 16. And uh, today we're going to be talking about hazards, risks, and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, some of the other bank contagion that uh, we have started to see over the weekend and into the trading day today. So um, what I'm what what I'm not going to do on this episode is go through all that happened at Silicon Valley Bank and what I think about that because there's so much that has been written about it and is continuing to be written about it. So I'm not going to throw my voice into there, but um, but I do want to share a little bit of about what I read uh, this weekend and what I've been following. Uh, so that way, number one, listeners of this podcast understand kind of at a simple level uh, how this is happening. The biggest question that everybody's going to ask with this, um, of course, is what does this mean for the whole banking uh industry as a whole, the whole system, you know, the president was on television this morning and over the weekend trying to reassure everybody that the banks are good. And so I think there's just some questions around what, what does this mean? What's going to happen? Um, maybe a little bit about why this happened, but I'm also going to talk about some of the, uh, miseducation that happens when we start talking about banks. And we're going to cover things like a little bit on FDIC insurance, a little bit on risks versus hazards, because I saw a lot of uh, traffic on social media this weekend trying to diagnose the precise uh, hazard that was exhibited in the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank and uh, Silvergate and some of the other things that are have started to kind of poke their ugly heads around this week. So um, one of the absolute best takes that I saw over the weekend, and uh, if you're watching this episode um, and I'm, I'm looking this direction over here, it's because I'm reading from my screen. So bear with me. I've got notes in front of me. I've got some stuff on my screen. So uh, pardon me if I'm looking away. If you're listening, no harm, no foul. It's still going to be in the same ears unless you change, you know, panning from left to right or whatever. But anyway... Um, the best take I saw all weekend uh, came from Josh Brown. He's a CNBC contributor, co-host of the Compound and Friends podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts for uh, financial um, news and current events and things like that. And just general, uh, they have a great time on that podcast. So um, they they basically would be kind of like what I would love to try to achieve if I had a, a co-host and more people on the show. Um, they do it really well. Josh is also the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. So I'm going to read a little bit from his story. Um, the link can be found. I'm going to put this in the show notes so that way you can go read the rest of it. But um, here's what he says. This was posted on March 10th, which was Friday. Uh, and it's just entitled SVP or just titled SVB. I don't know. I, I often say entitled when I'm talking about what things are called, but it really should just be titled. So 
Uh, pardon my probably southern mispronunciation of things, but uh, the post is titled SBB, and this is from Josh Brown, and uh, it reads like this. The spectacular blow-up currently taking place at SVB and its primary subsidiary, Silicon Valley Bank, is the biggest story in the markets this week, which is now last week. SVB is systemically important for the technology sector and its Northern California ecosystem. As Jim Cramer put it last night, the fe- which would be uh, Thursday night at this in this case, the Federal Reserve has been firing a machine gun at the economy for the last 12 months, but it hasn't hit anything yet until today. The general story here, without repeating all the detailed accounts out there, is that this is a bank that grew deposits and assets at a rapid rate between 2015 and 2021 as the technology bull market became a full-blown bubble. Side note, I've talked a lot about this, um, and uh, there is a episode uh, of the Financial Purpose Podcast where I really went through this well. Um, talking about the 2021 um, situation, and uh, it's uh, episode 11 when I talk about recession and other scary words, and episode 9, where is the market headed in 2023, and uh, there's a pretty good run-through in both of those episodes of of how we got to where we are, where the market is, what happened in 2021, etc., all right, so technology bull market became a full-blown bubble. Back to Josh's podcast. They had to stuff, they being Silicon Valley Bank, had to stuff all the deposits somewhere, and that somewhere was in 10-year treasuries yielding 1.5% on average. Now that interest rates have gone up by almost 500 basis points in just the last 12 months, these bonds are down in price. And another side note, uh, my clients will hear me talk about this as a seesaw. When bond yields go up, bond prices go down. They have an inverse relationship and vice versa. Bond prices go up, bond yields go down. So right now the yields are high, the prices are down. At the same time, there have been no IPOs or exits for clients of Silicon Valley banks, and that's going to be their founders and and venture capitalists. And the cash burn rates at these businesses have necessitated the ongoing withdrawal of funds from their Silicon Valley bank accounts. Therefore, the bank had money going out faster than it had been coming in and an asset portfolio with big losses. They decided to sell a chunk of their portfolio, and this was a a very large chunk of their portfolio, at a loss and do a capital raise to account for the funding gap. Um, so just as a, again, as another side note here, banks will often have um, investments, cash-like investments that are typically uh, should be considered safe, quote-unquote safe. Um, and uh, some of those are going to be available for sale assets. Some of those are going to be um, held to maturity assets and uh, how those assets get unloaded over time. And uh and for how long they get held are, are kind of complicated, but that's part of the story here. So um, Silicon Valley Bank, they decided to sell a chunk of the portfolio at a loss to do a capital raise to account for the funding gap of the deposits being taken out versus what's coming in. This set off a chain reaction that led to a classic run on the bank as many prominent venture capitalists began telling their portfolio companies to move money away. This sort of thing 
Fed on itself. SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, went from a $45 billion market cap to a sub $5 billion market as of the open on Thursday morning. So literally overnight, the thing got cut significantly. The stock price went in half um, between Wednesday and Thursday of last week. In good times, SVB's willingness to lend to the innovation economy has been an inst- has been instrumental to the tech industry. The virtuous cycle this creates put the bank at the center of all the activity and generated loads of profit and goodwill. In more difficult times like these, everything goes into reverse. The virtuous cycle becomes a debt spiral where the worse things get, the worse things get, and this could eventually become a panic. I think that's where we are today with the stock price being cut in half two days in a row. And then he went on and uh, discussed a few more related thoughts. Now, this is interesting. I'll just share one of those. Um, The first related thought that Josh had is that there's always more than one. Other banks that have lent to or supported technology entrepreneurs and startups are going to be at risk before the storm passes. Now, I think that's interesting. And thanks, uh, Josh, for, for writing this out because it was a very, very easy to understand explanation of what happened. Um, we're starting to actually see this play out because uh, actually on the same day, last Wednesday, that Silicon Valley Bank announced that they were having a little bit of concerns and they were going to do a capital raise, um, Silvergate Bank announced that they were folding and closing operations. Now, Silvergate Bank had a lot of exposure exposure to the crypto markets. There's some speculation on whether or not they were um, you know, a legit functioning, well-run bank anyway, but that's, that's beside the point. I, I have nothing to offer on that because I just don't know. Um, but yesterday there was a closure of a second bank, New York based bank signature bank. And the story on them cited what's called systemic risk. And we'll get into a little more of that kind of risk later in this episode. And Josh alluded to it in his post as well. So Signature Bank was a commercial bank with private client offices in uh, New York, Connecticut, California, Nevada, North Carolina. And they had nine national business lines, including commercial real estate and digital asset banking. As of September of 2022, almost a quarter of its deposits Almost a quarter of the deposits to Signature Bank were uh, in the cryptocurrency sector, and the bank announced in December, just a couple of months ago, that it would shrink its crypto-related deposits by about $8 billion. So that's not a small, insignificant number, but uh, almost a quarter of the deposits came from crypto uh, sector, and we know what's happened in crypto over the past 12 months. And if you've listened to this podcast or you've read any of my um, other blog posts, or even you've seen some of the things that I tweet, and you can uh, find me on Twitter at Dale Schaefer, and um, and uh, that's D A L E S H A F E R. Twitter at Dale Schaefer. Um, I think you'll start to get familiar with my thoughts on crypto in the crypto craze of 2021. And you know what? Let's just actually call it the asset craze of 2021, which um, we're basically all paying for now. And uh, we've really been paying for it for about 15 to 18 months. And again, um, going back to some of the prior podcast episodes, if you listen to episode 11 and episode 9, you'll get some of my take on this. Um, But uh, technically, I think we can call what we're dealing with now we've been playing with for about two years because the tech 
industry um, and the stock prices for those things and the you know, the the valuations and all of that really started to roll over about two years ago. It was in February, March of 2021 when we started to see some crackling there. Um, but today we're seeing some concerns about three other regional banks as the market trades. Uh, it's Monday, March 13th. It's uh, 1030. Uh, I'm in Arizona, but we are now uh, aligned with Pacific time. So it's 1.30 uh, Eastern time, so the market is still trading. Um, we've seen a halt on First Republic stock. We've seen a halt on um, Pacific Westerns. We've seen some uh, craziness around Western Alliance. And some of the other regional banks are also just down a lot, double digits uh, today in, in market trading. And um, we'll see what the, the three primary banks, First Republic, Pacific Westerns, and Western Alliance, um, why those particular banks are down is kind of hard to get a good read on, but it's a little bit of, I mean, it's basically contagion is what we're seeing here. And, um, and the, the FDIC and, uh, the Federal Reserve, Treasury Secretary Yellen, everybody's watching this really closely and they've pledged an awful lot of support to, especially the depositors of these institutions, uh, not the investors of these institutions because of the risk that you take on when you invest in financials and banks and really anything else. Um, but if you have your money at a bank in the United States, we assume that the banking system is safe and the liquidity is there and the money is there if we need to access at any point, right? Um, so what's happening, in my opinion, to these banks um, should not be considered anything remotely close to a 2008-esque financial crisis. Um, it could, though. It could become something kind of like that because of contagion if enough people get spooked uh, and decide to pull deposits from banks because of all the things that they're seeing on the news or rumors on social media um, or how they're seeing the the bank stocks trade over the course of the next couple of days. And in fact, I was uh, on Twitter this morning looking at just some of the, the news that I follow in the financial community. <laughs> yeah, somebody who goes to Twitter for their news, right? That's been kind of the funny thing uh, over the past couple of years. But there's a lot of really good financial um, people that I follow on that platform. And uh, I was looking around and, and some of the people I follow, they're posting the same video of a line of people outside of a bank somewhere in Los Angeles, a small community bank. And um, they're basically saying it's a run on the banks. And so the more that a video like that spreads, that's how contagion goes. Um, and we basically pass those things around like a hot potato. It's confirmation bias of everything that we're concerned about. And uh, those kinds of things, and frankly, because of social media, it makes us our own worst enemy in periods like this. Um, so here's the question that you're probably going to be asking if you're not already. Um, in the wake of the stories, the more that you see these things roll out is number one, um, and the primary question is, is my money safe at my bank? Wherever I bank, is my money safe? Especially if you bank at a smaller community bank or a regional bank or, or something like that. And it really depends on how much money you have at the bank. Um, it depends on where you have it and in what type of account, uh, because you probably have FDIC coverage. Now, FDIC, of course, is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, and it is funded by the banks paying into it um, as a way to protect 
depositors. Now, the uh, the president's secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen, they are insisting to the general public that whatever happens with Silicon Valley Bank and with Signature Bank and everything that they're trying to do to make depositors whole, that it's not taxpayer funded. Now, we've heard that before, so who really knows? But for now, the FDIC has taken over uh, specifically these banks, and definitely Silicon Valley Bank, and they're providing um, not only the FDIC limit of $250,000 per uh, depositor, per ownership category, per institution. They're also pledging beyond that based on how much money uh, some of these companies had on deposit at the bank. And Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a large deposit bank or deposit base. Most of their clients were in that kind of uh, tech sector, certainly Northern California, a lot of exposure there. Um, but on average, these uh, businesses and people had a lot more than $250,000 in an account at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so you can learn more about uh, FDIC coverage at FDIC.gov. I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. But but basically, if you're not familiar with it, uh, the way it works is that if you have your own account, say you're a single person and you go open a bank account, up to $250,000 of your cash in that single checking or savings or a combination of those types of accounts of your single person, up to $250,000 is insured by the FDIC. Now, when you start to branch out and have a single account or a joint account or uh, certain retirement accounts at a bank like an IRA or if you have a trust account or any other kind of account that you're attached to, if it has different ownership, then you get a whole nother block of uh, coverage and insurance. And of course, if you have a checking account at bank A and a checking account at bank B, then you've got full coverage on those two accounts at separate institutions as well. So it's quite complex. Again, go out to the FDIC.gov um, website. Again, the link is going to be in the show notes, and you can learn more about how the FDIC program works if you're not familiar. Um, so when we start talking about what's happening at these banks and FDIC insurance and and why these things happen and why the depositors have to be made whole um, – I saw, again, a lot of social media stuff over the weekend, um, and uh, I was following the, the Silicon Valley Bank, and I was bouncing between news stories and, and what I was seeing, again, from the financial community on Twitter and some of the other um, publications that I receive from the financial industry. And I saw a lot of people um, on the Twitter side who were citing what they thought had happened. A lot of them were citing hazards, uh, financial hazards, risk hazards. And they were pointing to morale hazard in particular. Now, that kind of language is commonly associated with uh, insurance, property casualty, or home and auto insurance, right? Um, and typically, when there's a hazard involved, um, there's uh, the hazard comes um, by being exposed to a peril. And apparel is is a danger. It's um, it's it's something that causes the the hazard to be exposed. So, for example, uh, if you have uh, if you've built your house on the edge of a mountain, uh, lower mountain, 
then you're, you, you've got some hazard there because of potential rock slide or depending on where you're in the country, maybe it's an avalanche hazard. And so the peril is going to be the rock slide or the avalanche, something that causes damage to your home. But you certainly took a risk and have hazards associated with building your house there. Same thing with living in a floodplain and uh, refusing to pay for flood insurance. Um, that's a hazard and you're opening yourself up to the exposure of a peril. So um, in insurance contracts, uh, perils that are usually covered are things like fire, wind, water, theft, um, and those are commonly listed. However, there are some perils that are uh, excluded and you can buy additional insurance to uh, bring those in. But um, in this case, and I'm, I'm reading from some notes here, so um, with the peril, then we've got the hazard. And I want to talk a little bit about hazard because people are citing hazards for these things. So um, with an insurance company, before they decide to provide coverage, they may consider the hazards that are present in the situation. And that's likely uh, they're going to do some uh, actuarial work to understand what their risk of exposure is there. And then that's often going to determine a, whether or not they'll insure it, and then B, if they will, what that premium for insurance is going to cost. And the insurance industry commonly divides hazards into three categories. You've got physical hazards, moral hazards, and morale hazards, and they're quite different. So let me walk you through the three of those. So physical hazards are uh, actions, behaviors, they're conditions that contribute to Apparel. So a good example, smoking is considered a physical hazard because uh, it increases the chances of a fire occurring, especially if you're one of those individuals who smokes cigarettes in bed. That's a great way to, um, to potentially start a fire. So um, freight electrical wiring, uh, liquid spills, things like that can be considered physical hazards. Um, and also things like uh, climbing cell towers to change light bulbs or... Uh, operating heavy machinery or equipment, right? Those are physical hazards. Then you have moral hazards, which is wrongful behavior, bad conduct. And so um, this is going to be things like uh, what typically happens here is going to be auto accident victims who, uh, when they're in, in an accident, they exaggerate their injuries and they, they make a, a false claim to try to get money, uh, more money from the accident in the form of a settlement. Um, you could have a, uh, a business owner who ignores health concerns and puts their employees at risk without proper protection um, against those health concerns. Um, you might have people who um, leave their car unlocked or their front door to their house unlocked um, and maybe in a neighborhood where that's not, um, I, not a good idea. And actually... Probably it's never a good idea in any neighborhood because um, there's just people who will take advantage of those things and they will steal because they can. Um, and so those are all moral hazards. Now, morale hazards, this is what we often uh, hear cited for people who just have an error in judgment. Um, and certainly that's what's been cited about the Silicon Valley Bank thing. And so morale hazard is it's a careless or a reckless attitude. Uh, that can allow a peril to occur. So um, there's uh, – and actually, I'm going to put the show notes for this too. This, all, everything that I just read is from Investopedia.com. Um, 
They say they have a note that called out, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, it's been speculated that the insurance industry itself creates a moral hazard, and that is an individual who is covered by insurance might be less likely to safeguard their health or their property than somebody who will lose that if a disaster occurs. And they go on to say that even the legal system sometimes is considered a morale hazard because it may encourage people to sue for monetary gain, even when they have little to no cause. And I'll tell you, side note, one of the quickest things that makes people completely change who they are or just go crazy is money. Um, it certainly tends to happen around uh, when, when people pass away and there's some inheritance that's left or there's money in bank accounts or somebody's aware of how much money was in a trust or they have a copy of, of the will or the trust uh, certificate, that kind of thing. People get really crazy about money. It, it, it cha- it's something about the, the way that we're wired. It changes their behavior. Money makes people act really funny. Um, that's kind of my saying. Money makes people act funny. It just does. So that's those are the hazards. And so people are talking about that. And I think um, that what we're likely better to point to in the case of some of these things like with the banks, because in Silicon Valley Bank's uh, case, they weren't out speculating and doing bad things and stealing money and, and running multiple sets of books that we know of or anything like that. Um, really, what happened was they used the financial system. They used 10-year treasury bonds that um, were exercising a yield. They were holding those to maturity, but they weren't getting enough income to meet the uh, the deposit and the withdrawal demand. And so that that's really a large part of what happened here. They just basically made um, investment decisions that didn't work out based on um, some of the things that they didn't know, right? So a year ago, if you bought a 10-year treasury, um, you would have no idea. Maybe you could kind of see it coming if you had seen this movie before. But a year ago, we did not know that the Fed was going to push 500 basis points of rate hikes at us in a period of 12 months. Anybody buying a 10-year treasury a year ago did not know that the two-year treasury yield was going to be significantly higher than the 10-year treasury yield. That is an inverted yield curve, and that's typically an indicator of a lot of bad things ahead. It's usually a uh, uh, what we would call kind of like a, a red flag warning for a upcoming recession. Uh, the bond market is usually pretty good at predicting incoming recessions. But this also is the recession that everybody's wanted for two years and everybody's been calling for for two years and it hasn't shown up. Maybe now, maybe now it's showing up. Uh, Maybe, uh, as Josh Brown said in uh, the podcast episode that he links to at the end of his post, uh, which is the most recent Compound and Friends episode that was released on Friday about banks, um, he said that he thinks that we may have put in a top on the two-year yield um, because depending on what the Fed does, uh, we're, we're just at a point where I, I don't know that those rates can continue to go any higher without more of the economy breaking. And so that's where we are. That's what the Fed's done to us. So I think what we need to actually look at instead of the hazards are actually risks. And that's an entirely different thing than a hazard. So, um, you know, with Silvergate, with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, um, and, and talk about bad timing. 
So Silvergate announced on Wednesday that they were ceasing operations, and we kind of knew that was coming. And then on the very same day, Silicon Valley Bank said, "Hey, we're having uh, we're having some deposit trouble, so we're we're putting a lot of uh, we're selling assets. We're going to uh, look for additional funding. We're going to open up and sell more. Uh, we're going to release more stock into the market." And so um, that happened on the same day. And uh, they basically were saying, "Hey, we're trying to raise liquidity. We just thought you should know." And um, and of course, who knew that two days later uh, they would be shut down and and in conservatorship by the FDIC. Certainly, as it, be, as it comes to investors, um, we need to look at risk because investors who had money in so, uh, any of those banks, Silvergate, um, Silicon Valley Bank, right? Any of the regionals that I talked about earlier in the banks, anybody who had investments in those banks and own stock, you're not going to be made whole. Maybe some larger institution will come in and buy the assets of these banks and then uh, somehow they'll encompass or, or convert the stock, take over the stock and it'll trade under theirs and there will be some sort of reward for uh, anybody who held shares in these banks. And that remains to be seen. I, I don't know. But but financial risk, let me go through some of the financial risks because this gets a little um, more in depth on what we deal with. And as a financial advisor who uh, in, advises people on portfolio management and um, asset management and bonds and stocks and ETFs and all of that stuff, we have to look at risks. And there's a lot of different ways that we can slice up risks. So I'm going to slice those up kind of simply. Um, I borrowed this from uh, BFI Finance, and I'll put a link in the show notes as well. So um, they defined risk quite well. So let me go through those. So the first is, let's define financial risk. It's a condition that arises from a uh, as the result of changes both internally and externally that can be financially detrimental to a person, a group, uh, or a company. Losses caused by financial risk can be diverse, and uh, it includes the loss of assets, experiencing large amounts of losses, disrupted cash flow, and some other things like that. Um, so here's the types of financial risk. We have general financial risk. It's divided into two categories. Um, we have systematic financial risk and non-systematic financial risk. Systematic financial risk, uh, it cannot be predicted or avoided due to several factors. Uh, for example, the pandemic was a systematic risk. It affected everybody. Um, political climate, inflation, uh Interest rates going 500 basis points in 12 months, market volatility, um, you know, a, a systemically important bank failing over the weekend, right? Those kinds of things. That's a systematic risk because it spreads throughout the entire system. Everybody feels it. Non-systematic risk uh, is a financial risk that just uh, happens to one person or one organization or one small group due to an event. And so that's often like, you know, some sort of financial loss or an illness or a death or something like that. Um, and then we have personal and individual financial risks. Uh, those risks look like income risk, which is the variability of or even the ability for you to earn income. You have expenditure risk um, that arises when you have expenses that are starting to exceed uh, income or resources, right? We look at that in cash flow planning. Uh, if you're a client of Life Moves Wealth, we do cash flow planning as a part of our uh, Elements Financial Health System. So uh, that's expenditure risk. You've got asset or investment risk, and that's a risk that arises because of the investments that you choose. 
and um, you can have and, – and that's not just in the market. That can be in real estate. It can be in vehicles. It can be in jewelry. Um, and those things can be uh, – they can be stolen. They can be damaged. They can be lost. You can have um, market risk as well. And then you have uh, credit or debit risk, which is uh, the inability for you to pay debts, uh, to take on additional penalties for using uh, credit or being trapped into debt by high interest rates and the un inability to uh, properly service that higher amount of debt. Then take a breath. Take a breath. Here we go. Okay. Then we've got financial risk that's based on different time periods. So again, we went through uh, general risk. We went through uh, individual risk, and now we're going through time-based risk. We've got short-term risk, which uh, is unexpected. Again, short-term. When we're talking about short-term, it's usually best to think of that as something that is within the next 12 months. Um, and so all kinds of things can come up. The example that they use here is that you know, if you have a vehicle that suddenly breaks down or uh, damage to a tire that causes you to have to spend money that you weren't planning on, uh, that can be short-term risk. Long-term risk uh, can be uh, something that can fundamentally change uh, your financial situation for a longer period of time. So um, this cited here is uh, if you have somebody who's very important to the family who passes away, uh, then the family may have difficulties for a longer period of time just catching up, restarting life, resetting finances, that kind of thing. Then uh, you've got financial risk that's based on certain kinds of impact. And so here, these tend to be the risks that we talk about with investing. Um, you've got pure risk and speculative risk. And so pure risk is a risk that has direct uh, impact. So for example, um, they use, again, vehicle breaks down, uh, that impacts you not only financially, but also uh, there's a time element that's impacted there because now you have to deal with that and it's something that you hadn't planned for that day. So that's a direct pure risk. Speculative risk uh, is when you're trying to achieve some sort of a, uh, a financial gain or a profit, um, but you're also putting yourself at risk for a loss. So there is some speculative risk that we deal with with the, the investing and the asset allocation. Now, some of that can be diversified away uh, by changing the allocation of the portfolio, but some of it, especially, especially when you are speculating, um, there's really not a whole lot of way to diversify that. And frankly, if you're speculating and you have a high risk tolerance, you're not looking to diversify risk. You're looking to maximize profit, understanding that you're taking a risk. Um, so then there's a specific risk, and uh, so that is going to be um, something that impacts just a very specific person or a very specific group because of, uh, you know, some sort of adverse situation. Uh, so they they cited uh, in this article uh, a housing a house fire that's in a, an apartment complex. That's going to be specific risk to those individuals. You've got static and dynamic risk. Static risk occurs uh, due to the loss of assets or property. Uh, in an accident. So going back to the example of the fire, that's a static risk. Um, the uh, the dynamic risk, um, that's when changes in economic conditions, for example, may have an impact. So um, when we have inflation, that's going to impact some people greater than others. When uh, the value of our currency moves around, 
um, when there's fluctuation in stock prices or even housing prices or uh, changes to rent prices, things like that. So those are all the risks and hazards. And I, and I hope that that helps you understand a little bit that I think what, we, what we're seeing happening with uh, Silvergate, Silicon Valley, and some of these other banks is not necessarily that anybody's done anything wrong. This isn't, again, it's not 2008-esque where we have bad products that were invested in heavily by these banks that then blow up. So they're not buying tranches of subprime mortgages again, right? It's not that kind of thing. They're not buying um, CDOs to ensure their risk against that basket of subprime mortgages. We're not, we're not doing that. This is basically, I think, uh, the results of a massive change in our economic conditions over the past two or three years because of who were the primary clients and customers of these specific banks and the type of industry that they were in. So if we have high growth companies who use this banking system and over 2020, 2021 and early 2022, they're depositing more money because remember we had interest rates at 0%. So at the start of the pandemic, the Fed cut interest rates all the way back down to zero. We were in a range of zero to 0.25%. Um, I've said in other podcast episodes and other um, blog posts that the Fed does not dictate the exact rate. They put it in a range. It's zero to 0.25 or currently it's 4.5 to 4.75 and um, and then the member banks of the Federal Reserve will actually set the rate that they will charge each other on an overnight basis. That's what the function of the, the Fed funds rate is. And so um, when rates are at or near zero and banks can lend out money um, at low interest and get money back and these companies are flush with money because of um, you know, pandemic stimulus and because of economic changes and things like that. Um, and they're going to push money in there. And, and like Josh said in, in his post earlier in the podcast, those banks need somewhere to put that money and they need to generate a return on the money so that way they can pay depositors a yield to hold their money there. And that gets very competitive. So the banks need to generate money on the investments. They need to lend it out uh, they need to also then be able to put money into other instruments that will generate yield for them so they can generate yield for for their clients. Um, and I think what's important is to kind of think about where we go from here. And as I kind of wrap this up, I want to I want to land the plane here. Um, anecdotally, I think that the market is going to play chicken with the Fed for the next week and a half. We started the day today um, with the market off, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of about one percent. And uh, I just refreshed my screen. I'm looking and across the board, you know, we're a half a percent higher on the S&P 500. We're uh, almost 0.4 or uh, 40 basis points higher on the Dow. We're one, a little over 1% higher on the NASDAQ. We do, got a, we do have a little bit more volatility. The, uh, the VIX is at uh, 25.91 and that's, that's about uh, 4.5% higher than it was at the close of the market on Friday. So um, the market's playing chicken because now I think, you know, at the opening, I think the market thought, oh no, we've got a banking crisis here. We don't like this. This is going to continue to spread throughout the, the rest of the economy and, and different sectors. 
And now I think they said, okay, the FDIC steps in. The president just said we're going to do whatever we want. So this probably means that the Fed is going to maybe not raise as much because over the weekend, the odds on the Fed uh, jumping their target another 50 basis points went from like nobody says that to like three quarters of the market participants were betting that the Fed was going to go 50 percent or I'm sorry not 50 percent 50 basis points uh, or half a percent higher when they meet next week Um, so now I think what we're seeing is that the market's saying okay with all this happening everything's stepping in the Fed's going to have to realize that maybe the economy is starting to show some of the effects of 500 basis points or almost 500 basis points of interest rate hikes and so they're going to maybe just raise a quarter of a percent or they're going to do nothing and so um, I happen to think that a large part of this is, uh, in my opinion, um, the Fed really fudged this. They they waited way too long. I think they waited a year too long to start raising rates. They started raising in March of 2022, exactly a year ago. Um, I think they should have started raising in March of 2021 based on how crazy uh, other parts of the market had gone. We were watching... Uh, the stock market go crazy. We were watching crypto go crazy. NFTs went crazy. Real estate went crazy. SPACs went crazy. Everything that could go crazy went crazy. And the Fed looked at that. And for months, they told us, oh, yeah, we're seeing some inflation, but we think it's transitory. All of this is transitory. It's transitory, transitory. Well, I think we're finding out now um, that it's not transitory. And in fact, uh, most of us who were paying attention to this knew that it wasn't transitory. We we were saying it. I was saying it all along to clients. I don't think this is transitory. I don't think this is transitory. Here's what we're seeing everywhere else. Um, and so I, I think they waited too long. I think they waited a year too long, as I said. Um, now, I think what they'll probably do is raise a quarter of a point. I'm making a prediction here, and I, I, I you know, have no, no – uh, Wager claim or, you know, you can't come after me if this is wrong. This is just my prediction and I've got nothing to base it on, but just what I'm what I'm observing and what I think is going to happen. So um, I think they'll raise a quarter of a percent next week when they meet. And then I think they're probably going to take a pause uh, when they go to the May meeting and we'll see what Jerome Powell says in his press conference next week. Um, Now, if you ask my clients, uh, I said that that would probably be the case. And I've been saying that for a couple of months now. Um, But then last month when we got the inflation data and we saw that we really didn't make any progress uh, and the job market remained stubborn, I actually walked that back a bit and said that I thought uh, that because of um, the inflation staying relatively stable and job market continuing to be strong, that the Fed's going to keep raising. And so I thought that they would probably raise a quarter point in March, I thought that they would raise a quarter point in May, and then we'll see what they do at the meetings after that. Um, but I think based on what we saw this week, I'm going to go back to my original prediction. Um, I, I, think that's, uh, I think that that's what they're going to do. So Jerome Powell said in his statement last week to Congress, which, by the way, let me, let me just go on a rant here um, for just a minute. I, I don't think that it should be a thing. I, I, don't, I don't know that the the – the Fed chairperson should go speak before Congress because these are, we have our top economist 
who's sitting in front of who I like to say are not our best and brightest when it comes to financial matters. I mean, these people, they have no idea clearly how to balance a budget. Uh, They don't know how to spend responsibly. They don't understand crypto markets. Obviously, let's go back to what happened with uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and and the FTX thing and how many politicians were taking money from that and they were praising all the crypto stuff. And now they're like, oh, (laughs) they don't understand this stuff. Um, they don't even understand how the stock market and, and much of the economy works. Now, with when it comes to the stock market, and here's my hot take on this, um, the only time that they really seem to understand how it works is uh, in their veiled um, – well, let me just call it what it is. It's really a veiled form of um, manipulation and insider trading. So when they're able to profit from something that's coming up, um, they certainly certainly understand how the stock market works, but really in hindsight, they've got no clue what they're talking about. Um, and and frankly, here's the thing: they don't they don't ask the right questions. It's not all that different from the press conference after every FOMC meeting, where Jerome Powell basically fields for about a half hour the same question over and over from every reporter, just worded slightly differently, so they think that they have an edge, or maybe they'll catch them saying something else. It's the same question. Stop asking it, or ask better questions, or maybe, and here's my idea, how about they actually let those of us who interpret all of this data and information for people in the general public, how about we get to ask the questions? Because we're going to ask better questions than anybody who is in governments or certainly some of these reporters. Um, Some of them do very, very good work, so I'm not going to be down on journalism. Um, I just wish that they would ask better questions in that press conference. They, They have an opportunity um, you know, we're making we're making monetary policy history here and there are better questions that could be asked. So I hope hope that we get some better questions, certainly coming out of this past weekend, as we see there. But I'm going to go back to my original take. I, I do think the Fed's going to raise 25 basis points next week, and then I think they're going to take a pause at the May 1st and 2nd meeting. Um, and they've been aggressively raising rates for a full year, and I think by May – we should start to see more of the impact trickle through the economy. And that was one of the things that Jerome Powell said to Congress is that he recognized that, you know, even a year in and even as aggressively as they've been raising rates, um, it takes time, usually about a year, for interest rate hikes to filter through the economy and start to show an impact. So that's where we are. I hope that this information has been helpful. Um, leave a comment in uh, the video or on the podcast or send me an email. Um, let me know what you're thinking about this or if you have any follow-up questions about uh, anything that's related to the banks, how the FDIC insurance works, um, how you might be impacted. I mean, the two biggest questions that I answer all the time with my clients is, number one, if this happens, am I going to be financially okay? And whatever the this is can be a, a myriad of things. But if this happens, am I going to be okay? And the second question is, what do I do next? And if either of those questions are on your mind, um, drop a comment, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. So that's it. I'm going to wrap the podcast here. Until next time, take care.